Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. So do you want to know what I was most disappointed by when, when I saw Kim Derrick's leaked? That's Sir emails. Kim. Sir you, Kim Derrick, British ambassador, former. Uh, why did he use words like inept and clumsy to describe the president and the administration when there are so many better words like British slang? Oh, but there's like it's, daft. It's or classic twit. British understatement. They're just clumsy, which is to say they fall flat on their faces all the time. Well, but hang on. We got to give Kim Derek credit because that Terminator rising from the. It was a freaking great metaphor. It really Donald is. Biden. It really is. And this I don't know why we've never too. thought of it. This is part of the long running US UK competition over which Foreign Service writes better cables. You didn't <laughs> yes. know about this? Is that true? Oh, it's a thing. Well, he's, he's definitely had. <laughs> even if he didn't them. use the word pillock or muppet. <laughs> <laughs> you have to read them in a British accent to get yeah. like, the full effect of yeah, them. Yeah, exactly. It's 2020 slogan. I'll be back. (laughs) (laughs) Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the special relationship edition. It's such a special relationship. It is a special relationship. (laughs) What's a little candid observation among friends? We have a special relationship. (laughs) We do have a very special relationship Because I say all that shit about you guys behind your backs, too. (laughs) And we love you for it. It's your job. Totally. It is your job. If if your cables to to your family about all of us were leaked, I'd be like, listen, Susan speaks truth to power. This is what we pay her to do. Uh, Wait, we pay her? (laughs) (laughs) Shh. That's in my cable. (laughs) She only thinks she's being paid. Uh, We are here in the New Jungle studio with my good friends Tamara Kaufman-Wittis, Ben Wittis, and Susan Hennessy. Hi, everybody. Hi, Shane. Um, And it's blissfully not 110 degrees in Washington this week, which feels great. Um, This week on the podcast, the British ambassador to the United States resigns after his candid opinions on President Trump are leaked. Federal prosecutors intensify their investigation of a top Trump fundraiser. And a malicious conspiracy theory about a murdered DNC staffer turns out was planted by Russian intelligence agents. Go figure. Um, so let's start with the big news, I guess, of the week. Uh, Sir Kim Derrick uh, announced today, Wednesday, that he would resign as U.S. ambassador, feeling that it had become untenable, uh, his situation, after uh, a number of uh, diptels. Diptels, is that what we call them? Diplomatic tele. Current you know, cables, not emails, like actual God's honest cables, like things that only a few people should have access to, um, were leaked to the Daily Mail. And I should note also to a journalist for the Mail who is a known sort of uh, Brexit cheerleader uh, and I think is uh, as someone, seen as somebody who is aligned with uh, the hard right and the kind of people who would probably not think that highly of Sir Kim in the first place or the British civil service for that matter. Uh, and, you know, showed that he was writing back things to London uh, that probably he's heard from hundreds of people in Washington, including from, I'm sure, the president's own senior staff about how chaotic uh, things are inside the White House. There was nothing shocking in the emails, but obviously it created you know, a big kind of diplomatic riff. And, and Tammy, maybe just the first place to start on this is, you know, A, why is it a problem to have a diplomat's candid observations out like this? And B, was his re- was the reaction from this administration appropriate or should we have followed some other words? Like what is the diplomatic thing to do in a delicate, undiplomatic moment, I guess? Wow. So I I think that's actually a more complicated question to answer than it may seem at first, because, of course, diplomatic representatives need to be able to send candid assessments, even if they're ugly, back to their capitals. Their leaders deserve candid assessments, and they deserve to be able to prepare appropriately for engagements with 
the U.S. leadership. And so if the U.S. leadership has no policy process, if it's clumsy, if it's confused, if it's internally riven, all these things that Sir Kim described, then Theresa May needs to know that because she can't engage effectively if she's working on a different set of assumptions. The problem is once this stuff is revealed in public, two things happen. One is that everyone who's t- who was talking to Sir Kim before worries about another leak. And so then they don't speak frankly to him anymore because they're not convinced he can ensure the security of their information. So he becomes less effective in collecting information about Washington. It's almost like a reporter's notebook getting dumped or something. Totally. But then the other thing is that his interlocutors inside the U.S. administration say, my God, he thinks we're inept. And so they they can't interact with him in the same way or with the same level of trust or mutuality as before. And so although it's entirely unfair to see a man um, compelled to resign because the White House cut him out and said they wouldn't talk to him anymore, it's unfair to see that happen to him for doing exactly what his job is to do. It is the case that his effectiveness was compromised by this leak. It was. And even if the White House hadn't chosen to freeze him out, it would have made his job more difficult. What about the president's blasting him on Twitter and calling him a fool and no one likes you, which, P.S., I mean, the number of people from the president's own staff who have partied into the night with Kim Derrick is <laughs> not small. Yeah, I think Sir Kim is one of the uh, one of the beloved members of the diplomatic corps sure. in Washington, and I think he will be much missed. And and so I think what Trump did there actually is, as is often the case when he launches on somebody, he just drew more attention to the issue. He made it an issue of national media coverage and not just a Washington story. Um, and so I don't think he did himself any favors. But I think the practical effect of Sir Kim resigning at this point, even though his government was formally standing by him and and very carefully apologizing for the leak but not apologizing for what he said – the effect practically is that Theresa May is going to be the one who's able to appoint his successor rather than having him stick around as a kind of lame duck and then let May's successor, who may be Boris Johnson or another you know, populist Brexiteer, appoint Sir Kim's successor. But how does that square with sort of reports that the reason he decided to step down, notwithstanding sort of the formal support of the government, was because Boris Johnson had made statements indicating that he wouldn't necessarily support him. And that actually appears to be the thing that um, was the catalyst for the decision to step down. Yeah, I, I saw that reporting too. And it certainly if I were in that job and I saw that my principal didn't have my back, that would that might induce me to write a resignation letter. But that's a difference between Boris Johnson's position now and the position he aspires to have. Um, and I do think that difference is relevant. And it also strikes me that, I mean, Boris Johnson would have found himself in a very tough spot. I was talking to somebody in London today about this, actually, that if he had gone ahead and said, no, 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 he can stay, you know, there would have been, you know, people sort of to his right. They would have been saying this is outrageous. You know, you've got this ambassador who, to your point, Tammy, is ineffective. He can't possibly do his job. We have to negotiate a trade deal with the United States. How could you possibly leave him there? At the same time, you know, it, it, it kind of blows back on Boris Johnson because now he's seen as somebody who throws senior civil servants under the bus. And is ready to be bullied by Donald Trump. And is Trump. ready to be bullied by Trump, precisely. So, I mean, with this person I was talking to said, look, he is kind of between a rock and a hard place because on the one hand, if he lets him stay, he is compromised and he's going to face criticism internally. On the other hand, by saying – by essentially compelling his resignation, he looks like he's being a poodle for Trump. Yeah, so – I want to say there's one person who did everything right here and it's Kim Darrow. <laughs> oh, he's coming out smelling um, like a rose. Know, and, I think he's probably sitting back having a good chuckle. When and, he, and, well, maybe and, not. But <laughs> and actually can. what Boris Johnson could do if he wanted to show that he refuses to be bullied is immediately appoint him to another senior right. ambassadorship. You right. know, he, look, this is a guy who – an ambassador has three things that they're supposed to do. One is – speak on behalf of their government appropriately. He's done that. None of the things that he's 
said to have said and pretty clearly did say were anything other than private official communications. Uh, number two, he's supposed to give candid advice to his own government. He did that. And number three, he's supposed to remove himself from any situation in which he is the issue. And now he's become the issue. The president is tweeting bile about him. Uh, it is not in his government's interest for him to be the issue. Uh, and so he's removed himself from the situation. And And I think it is hard to say that he did not do anything but what was appropriate in, in all of these circumstances. And that said, it's a loss because this is a person who is, uh, you know, contrary to what the president says, extremely well regarded in the United States, extremely... It has been uh, even before he was the ambassador. Yeah, well, he was the national no, security, security advisor, advisor. Uh, as well. I mean, somebody with very deep experience and and is exactly the opposite, as with many things, the truth is exactly the opposite of the president's tweets. He's well-liked, well-respected, and well-known around Washington. And so, you know, it's it, it's a, it's another example of the everything Trump touches dies principle. You know, I mean, look, okay. I, I have to say, I do... Well, I agree, right, that that he this leak had rendered him sort of potentially ineffective and and had made him the story and and that it might be appropriate to step down. I I do think this was a strategic mistake on the part of the Brits, in part because his tenure was coming to the to an end at the end of the year. Yeah, he was only talking about six more months. It would have been easily to quietly accelerate that to, you know, Thanksgiving or something such that you you had deputies in place and, and were sort of could could quietly make that transition happen a little bit faster. And so really, you only needed, the the Brits in this case, only needed to sort of deal with the consequences to the relationship for a relatively short period of time. And so the trade-off of appearing to capitulate to Trump's temper tantrums, right, whenever he's openly insulting your ambassadors, it it just looks incredibly weak. And two, to, to stand up and defend this norm of, you know, we need our ambassadors to give full candid advice. If this was an inside leak, which it appears to be, that's totally unacceptable as a matter of domestic politics. Uh, if speculations that it was some kind of external hack by the Russians or others are true, that also would be, uh, you know, something that you you would want to be very, very clear that uh, that behavior is not going to be rewarded by giving whoever made this public precisely what they would want. And so, it seems to me like th- those are really, really important principles to stand up for. Certainly Certainly worth kind of putting your head down and dealing with an you know an ambassador who was sort of persona non grata on the White House grounds for the next couple of months. Yeah, I agree with that very much, and I think that there's a broader consideration here, which is that it happens not incredibly often, but not infrequently that a government that's having a scratchy relationship with another government will personalize it to the ambassador, criticize that ambassador in public. And, you know, think about how Vladimir Putin dealt with Michael McFaul when he was the U.S. ambassador in Moscow, for example. And what's important is for the government that sent that ambassador, number one, to understand the scratchiness as a scratchiness in the relationship, not themselves to personalize it to the ambassador. Very occasionally, ambassadors personally become a problem. But in this case, what happened to Sir Kim was, you know, that he was manifesting extant tensions in the U.S.-U.K. relationship. He wasn't the cause of those tensions. He wasn't exacerbating those tensions. And so taking him out, replacing with somebody else doesn't actually change anything. Those tensions are still there. The next ambassador is going to do their job and write cables back saying that the Trump White House is chaotic and internally divided and inept because guess what? They are. And so – You know, I I think the danger here is that it contributes to a pattern in which governments can wield personal complaints about ambassadors as a tool in bilateral relationships. And that's one of the things that they're really not supposed to do. We had an issue in the State Department early in the Trump administration when a partner country in the Middle East complained about a career ambassador who, like Sir Kim, was coming to the end of her term anyway. And the Trump administration, instead of standing firm and saying, this is our ambassador, and if you have a problem with what she's saying, then you got to talk to us because she's saying what we tell her to say. They didn't do that. They yanked her early. And it doesn't actually solve problems in relationships. It just 
confuses the matter. And it also sort of it, – it seems to suggest that diplomacy is not ambassadors who represent the interests of their own country in a foreign nation, but instead that the job of diplomacy is somehow to to cuddle up to or, or to suck up to whatever, uh, you know, party or individual happens to be in power in a given country, which is just not an accurate understanding of sort of, or sort of the role of diplomacy generally. Well, and, and guess whose understanding of diplomacy that is, right? Mm-hmm. Donald Trump's. Tammy, in, in talking to people the past couple of days, after people say, you know, the working relationship is fine on the level of, you know, law enforcement, intelligence, security, trade, economic, economy, all that, that's fine. It's kind of going ahead. But clearly there is this, you know, extraordinary strain, <clears throat> certainly at the top of the system in terms of, you know, Trump not liking May, now this feud with the ambassador, Trump is accused uh, the British of spying on his campaign, which precipitated a couple of years ago an extraordinary public statement from GCHQ, their Signals Intelligence Agency. And I wonder if this is another example of a special relationship that is actually in a spiral here. I mean, are we overreading that? I mean, should we be worried that something fundamental is going to break down in the U.S.-UK relationship? Well, I I think the broader challenge is what's <laughs> – What's left that's special in the U.S.-U.K. relationship? Our colleague at Brookings, Tom Wright, had a piece in The Atlantic this morning reflecting on this business with Ambassador Darrock and noted that Theresa May herself, you know, has behaved not unlike Boris Johnson behaved in that debate. She has yielded to Trump again and again. She's cosseted him. She's turned the other cheek in the face of broadsides, offenses, underminings, um, outreach to her political opponents, right? And so all of that has already degraded what used to be a relationship of trust that surpassed politics. And that is of a piece with what we've seen in other relationships. You know, I think about the U.S.-Israeli relationship where the leader in Israel is a political ally of Trump, right? And so the Israeli prime minister can do things that have the effect of helping Trump domestically or hurting Trump's domestic opponents in the United States. And Trump does a favor for him on the other side. That kind of meddling in the internal politics of one another is something that undermines the durability of even the most strategic partnerships over time. Ben, you had a thought? Yeah, so I I do think uh, it is worth when the president tweets bile about the British ambassador, it is worth pausing over the depth of the relationship that he's playing with. You know, uh, it's been a while since I've looked this up, so I may have the details wrong. But Shane, I'm sure you remember this too, when General Hayden in his book describes on 9-11 or within a couple days of 9-11. No, it was, it was 2005. It was 2005? Yeah. Uh, right. Calls yeah. the head of GCHQ, not the FBI director or the CIA director, and says, if anything happens to this building, by which he means Fort Meade, you're in charge of U.S. signals intelligence. Right? That's the relationship that the president is playing with. To which GCHQ responded, Seriously? (laughs) Mike, is there something you want to tell me? Um, That's basically what he said. (laughs) Am I I misremembering? No, you're not at all. I mean, that is is how how closely intertwined these two services and countries are to the point that I know that I didn't ask Susan this because yes. I didn't want to put her in the position of having to answer the question. No, you're no, you're right. It was it was fear about a nuclear device, which Hayden doesn't say in his book, but that's my reporting shows that they they thought that they that Cato was trying to smuggle some kind of nuclear device in, and they were worried that if Washington were targeted or possibly, and the blast radius hit the fort, it was literally like we're going to transfer all of U.S. signals intelligence to you. And they told Chris Inglis, who was their man. In London, like basically if we're not here anymore, you're picking it up and go. And so they could literally do this because, I mean, they have so much of each other's sort of <laughs> – well, Susan's just One sort of – One might hope that the continuity of operations planning <laughs> has developed good. a bit in the intervening decade. <laughs> but I, I just – I guess I want to – I, I want to say like that is the that is the level of intelligence cooperation yeah. between these two countries. And when the president – you know, gets on gets on Twitter 
and and disparages the UK's representatives in the United States. That's what he's putting at risk. Yeah, that's true. And this is the last button on this. I think that you know, if you the systems work together, they share a lot. But I think any person being honest in British intelligence will tell you that they are the larger beneficiary of that relationship. And so when he does things like this, it also scares them. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's not just a, you know, we'd like to be friends. It's they know that they depend on us for a lot of things. That's a really good point. Okay. Let's move on to um, Elliot Brody. Remember him? That's a good question. Do you remember him? <laughs> well, I remember him. You remember Shane. Elliot Brody, that's for sure. Listeners, do you remember Elliot Brody? Elliot Brody, who is a – Tammy, I'm going to let you describe him, but let me just first sort of lead in why we're talking about him. Uh, we're reading from the New York Times here, Ken Vogel's piece this week, that federal prosecutors have intensified their wide-ranging investigation into Elliot Brody, a top fundraiser for Trump, signaling the Justice Department's continued interest in questions about foreign influence on the administration. And they go on to say that when you take all of these things that are happening together, it's just mounting pressure on Broidy and underscore the legal questions raised by his efforts to parlay his access into business advantage in the frenetic weeks after Mr. Trump's election and then to influence the new administration's policies towards the Middle East where he was pursuing contracts worth hundreds of millions of dollars. So, Tammy, remind us again who Elliot Broidy is and then talk to us about this Middle East connection. Okay, so interestingly, it it goes well beyond the Middle East at this point. Yeah. So Elliot Brody was a bundler. <laughs> and not a bungler, but a bundler. Well, maybe not a bundler. Bundler, bungler too. Right. A bundling bungler. Mm. Bungler. Yes. But Say certainly a bundler fast. of uh, money for President Trump's campaign uh, and for the RNC. And back in 2015, he bought this company that did defense intelligence and security work on contract for other governments. And so when Trump won the presidency, Brody basically used his ability to invite people to inaugural events to set up essentially a pay-to-play scheme for his own business, um, this this defense business called Searsonus. And so he invited officials from Angola He invited officials from, I think, Romania and a bunch of other places where he was trying to get contracts for his company. And if these guys came for the inauguration, he then introduced them to Donald Trump. Um, And and so, you know, the, the question here is. This is something that obviously was part of the investigations um, by the special counsel, but it's not clear, at least from the um, latest article, what is the goal of the continued Justice Department investigation into Elliot Brody? What cooperation do they hope to get out of him and related to what matters? So those of you who have been following the Mueller investigation more closely than I have, can you can you enlighten me? I don't know that it's related to the Mueller investigation. I think it's related to an undercurrent, which is it's the corruption, stupid, that the story of all of this, that we're so focused on Russian collusion and was there sort of an agreement and, and the obstruction questions, which are all important questions, um, to some extent, they've masked the, the real concern, the reason why we have things like counterintelligence investigations in the first place. And that's whether or not people are using improper channels to influence the United States government, whether or not uh, individuals in the United States government are using their official positions and misusing their official positions uh, in some manner other than the representation of the public interest. And so Brody is just another in, in, in a long st- sort of string of examples we've seen. We saw Michael Cohen, uh, who doesn't get brought into the administration and immediately starts having these lobbying contracts, uh, you know, with various people. We see Corey Lewandowski do it. To some extent, we even see it in the Mar-a-Lago thumb drive lady, right? Anybody who has access to the president turns around and tries to monetize that They have access. a special relationship. <laughs> they have an extremely special well, relationship. Well, some people would say that the president himself tries to monetize the office. <laughs> right. Exactly. And ordinarily, it's not uncommon for people 
able to, for sort of hangers on to attempt to monetize the relationships. We expect presidents, though, and administrations to adhere to ethical standards and put up barriers such that they can say in sort of good conscience and respond to this stuff by saying, no, these people are not influencing our administration. And what we've seen is the combination of uh, the the quality and number of kind of hangers on in the Trump orbit that all rush to, to sort of capitalize on his surprising win because there's a smaller group than, than ordinarily would be the case when uh, when a Republican nominee wins because his his victory was a surprise to most people and because the Trump administration is has been really pretty open uh, about sort of their uh, their willingness to to engage in this kind of corruption and I mean look you know these the allegations you know even just in this New York Times story right that Brody gives inauguration tickets to these Angolan officials they pay him six million dollars of a $64 million security service contract to his newly formed defense firm. But then they never do, they never collect any other money and he doesn't appear to perform any other services. Gosh, that sounds a lot like somebody selling tickets to inauguration and access to the newly elected president of the United States for $6 million, right? right. And so, you know, the, the facts here are, they're, they're allegations for now and we don't quite know uh, what angles the government is is looking at this through. But it sure looks like the most sort of basic, brazen forms of corruption and, and precisely what we need and expect the Federal Bureau of Investigation, uh, you know, to uh, to investigate and prosecute when appropriate in order to defend really, really core national security interests of the United States. And I think, Susan, you're right. I mean, thinking about that, not you know, that we didn't necessarily, I don't think anybody said we wasted time on Lafayette Roos, but maybe as it turns out is that that wasn't actually the story that's going to be the most politically or legally damaging for the president, that there's going to be perhaps some more just underlying, more basic corruption. And by the way, Brody is connected to two people, both Rick Gates and George Nader, who were tied up in that saga and gave evidence to the government. It's entirely possible that in addition to talking about anything related to Russia, they also handed over what they he's, knew about. He's also Elliot related Brody. to the National Enquirer, you know, paying people off to hide, right. mis- obtaining abortion for mistresses. So That's you, right. There's, it's, it's all really getting tied up in a nice bow at the end. Here. Yeah, I mean, Leferus is important, but this, it's, I just wonder if it's, you know, if this becomes, if this kind of corruption becomes, to your point, where the garden variety stuff becomes the thing that really the president should be more worried about. Yeah, so I actually don't think that. So lots and lots of presidents have had lots and lots of people who raised money for them who had little side hustles of their own for which they got in trouble and uh, sometimes got but indicted. Does this qualify a two hundred million dollars side, side hustles? I, I mean, I mean what's sixty-four million dollars among some friends? of us are old enough to remember the Chinese money scandal during the Clinton administration, which you know involved some relatively uh, in 1998 dollars large sums of money. It looks so uh, quaint. It looks quite <laughs> quaint right now. But like having people surrounding you know on, on the on the periphery of your campaign and inaugural committee who are lining their pockets is first of all disgusting, and. You know, it should be investigated, and if there is a charges to bring, it should be prosecuted, and no one should say in a word a word of defense in it of it. And it is not the same order of question as whether the you know whether there was participation with on the part of Trump himself or his immediate campaign of Russian efforts to interfere with the presidential campaign uh, in order to benefit him, and similarly. Uh, don't get your hopes up. It will not bring down Donald Trump if some fundraisers around him and some businesses around him were corrupt. I think these are- He was going to drain the swamp though? No one's saying this is a character reference. Okay. (laughs) Just just like- I'm just underscoring I mean, the Dem- hypocrisy. I'm, I'm well, just Democrats res- should be running ads with Elliot Brody's face. Yes, I'm totally. I'm just, sure they will. I, and I'm sure they will run ads with uh, Jeffrey Epstein's pictures with Donald Trump as well. And I, all of that is fair, and all of that, and and I'm I'm not I'm merely responding to the suggestion that actually while we were looking over here at La Faire Russe, there was actually this much bigger scandal, which was you know, garden variety political corruption. And I don't think that's correct. I think the, you know, garden variety political corruption is something that 
is clearly a feature of this administration. It's clearly a, an ugly and dangerous feature of this administration. But I, I think what is truly exceptional about this administration is engagement with foreign actors uh, that don't have the U.S. national interests at heart and are willing and a sort of willingness to engage with those actors on a, a very self-interested, not national interested basis. Well, on an unbounded basis. I I guess the the one direct connection I would draw though is that it is partly through the vehicle of the Mueller investigation that some of these other corruption cases have been discovered. And likewise, it is through the vehicle of these other corruption investigations that the Justice Department has been able to get some people to provide information relevant to the Russia investigation. So even if, you know, even if they are not all part of the same picture, they are interrelated enough that it facilitates the Justice Department's investigation of a whole array of crimes. Um, and I will say, even whenever we get sort of, you know, statements from Bill Barr and others that, that really make one wonder about the long-term institutional integrity of the Department of Justice, I, I do think it's worth noting that this demonstrates how hard it is for a president of the United States to get control of the Department of Justice and that there are people who really are committed to rule of law principles, who are not afraid to investigate people who might be connected to the president, not to say that they're targeting him. But I, I do think that we should take um, heart and, and be vigilant and pay attention to these investigations because that attention from the media and others is is one element that helps protect and preserve them. But um, as a little bit of a, of a counterweight to, you know, bars investigating the investigators and, and all the bad signs. Stories like these are still, you know, indications that a healthy and independent DOJ does still exist out there. Can I just note that that makes me feel better about the one personal sadness I had in reading this New York Times story about Elliot Brady, which is that one of the investigations that has arisen out of this is an investigation of a Malaysian businessman who was trying to launder money into the United States to to lobby for an end to a Justice Department investigation of his own crimes. And one of the people caught up in that was a member of the Fugees. Oh, yeah. Praz. Yeah. Praz so and Jolo. That bummed me out. MDB. But for the sake of an independent Justice Department, I will take heart. Yeah. Oh, d- d- don't worry. He, that, that chapter may yet be written. <laughs> I think it's going to be good. Um, speaking of sort of things that were tangential to Leferrus but then blossomed into like other – Like the Fugees. Very other things. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe a little more closely related <laughs> in this case. Things related to current pop culture trends. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm going to read here from a fantastic new scoop in Yahoo News uh, by the great Mike Isikoff. In the summer of 2016, Russian intelligence agents secretly planted a fake report claiming that the Democratic National Committee staffer Seth Rich was gunned down by a squad of assassins working for Hillary Clinton, giving rise to a notorious conspiracy theory that captivated conservative activists and was later promoted from inside President Trump's White House. Uh, Listeners of the podcast will probably remember, just a quick recap, though, Seth Rich was the young DNC staffer um, who was shot around 4 o'clock in the morning after coming back to his uh, house in Bloomingdale, coincidentally four blocks from my house. Um, And almost immediately, these conspiracy theories started that he was gunned down by you know, goons working for Hillary Clinton because he was probably the source of the DNC and uh, Clinton campaign emails to WikiLeaks. Um, Ben, I think that this story was actually, I mean, one of the more shameful episodes of the whole Russia affair. There was never an ounce of truth to any of it. And it was seized on maliciously by a bunch of just media gadflies and hate mongers, frankly, many of them associated with the White House and with the president. And no one really took it. I think no one with any real sense took it seriously. But explain to us again why this story nevertheless became significant and the importance of now being able to pin this on Russian intelligence agents as the sort of genesis of the conspiracy theory. So the importance of the story, I think, is threefold. Uh, First, that it provided the principal alternative explanation for the DNC hack other than that the Russians had done it and that if you were a if you were a Trump supporter or if you were 
uh, Sean Hannity or if you were Donald Trump himself. Or Roger Stone. Or Roger Stone, right? And you wanted some explanation of what happened to the DNC or Julian Assange, who also peddled in this stuff. And you wanted some explanation for this hacking that did not involve the Russians stealing Hillary Clinton's emails or Democratic emails to benefit Donald Trump, then this provided this death of a of a, a DNC staffer. You uh, asserted falsely that this person had in fact been the source of the leak and uh, – It was an inside job and, just right. like 9-11. And that right. exonerates the Russians and – uh, and thereby exonerates the Trump campaign from any possible collusion suggestion. So that's the first thing. The second thing is uh, simultaneously it functioned as a change of subject, right? So if you you allowed at, – at the same time as you were providing an alternative explanation, you're also saying subtly if, if not not subtly, you know, you think Trump – you're accusing Trump of benefiting from – uh, a uh, you know from a foreign government hack, yeah. Well, Hillary hired an assassination squad right. to to kill a young staffer at the DNC. I, I mean, it's a kind of one-upsmanship that was, I think, closely related to she's running a sex child sex ring yes. out of a pizza shop and a you know there was. I would say even more than closely, it stems from the same idea that these are somehow a family of super criminals. Exactly, exactly, yeah. and it was part. Of, there was part of that. The third element of it was, let's be just gross about it for a minute. People love a good murder story, right? And. You know, a DNC staffer gets killed in Washington D.C., and you—if you, you can make a political thriller out of it uh, that somehow involves Hillary, you, you know, that's going to be a good story that's going to grab a lot of people. And I think all of those were involved, and uh, all of those themes are reflected in the sort of feverish mind of Sean Hannity, and. It was clearly a disinformation campaign from early on. It was not clear to me at all that it was a Russian disinformation campaign. Uh, and I think, you know, as is often the case, Mike Isakoff just deserves an enormous amount of credit for an astonishing piece of reporting. And I, I have to say, as somebody who followed this episode pretty closely, it took me by surprise. Susan, I just want to look real quick, just give people some of the details then and come to you and ask you about them and other comments you want to make. But what Mike found was that the SVR, which is Russia's foreign intelligence service, circulated what he calls a phony bulletin disguised to read as a real intelligence report about the murder. And it was just three days uh, later that it starts, I guess, these these conspiracy theories start – um, popping up in and affecting the internet and they're sort of the the news cycles, not not mainstream news necessarily, but they start showing up on these conspiracy theory websites. And he goes on to say how the Russian effort to exploit Rich's tragic death didn't stop with just the fake bulletin. Over the next two and a half years, the Russian government-owned media organizations RT and Sputnik repeatedly played up stories that baselessly alleged that Rich, a relatively junior-level staffer, was the source of Democratic Party emails leaked to WikiLeaks. So, I mean, to me, it was this kind of deeply unsettling example of how this fake bulletin, which by the reporting, it sounds like nobody should have been fooled into thinking this was a real thing, nevertheless does become like this like this point of infection. And then suddenly it just spreads. Uh, and you know, I think plenty of people weren't taking it seriously, but it got such massive airtime and it was picked up in foreign press as well. It was always just sort of hanging out there, kind of polluting the whole story. And it just makes me think, you know, I mean, boy, did the Russians have our number. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, it's it's yet another example of the direct line from from the Kremlin and Russian intelligence into the Trump campaign, right? And that and and we can trace. There are countless examples in which you can trace. You know, in the Mueller report and and now stories like this. Uh, you know, Russian propaganda coming, you know, being used through sort of uh, propaganda outlets like RT, Sputnik, uh, and others. 
and then there's a it, it's picked up by the Trump campaign and their associates and and eventually we see it on Don Jr's Twitter feed or the president's Twitter feed or in an official White House statement and so what's really disturbing here is the closeness of that leap right this is not things that are circulating in in some crazy corners of the internet and then slowly after months and years somehow make their way into you know sort of more mainstream conservative media this is you know leaps that occur almost immediately, so immediately that you have to uh, wonder or assume if Trump allies and, and close associates aren't actively looking in those spaces, right? And so whenever we talk about the way Mueller talked about things like coordination, um, the ordinary definition of coordination would be that you see what the other person is doing and you take responsive action. You know, that that's one definition of coordination. Mueller says, no, 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 coordination uh, requires this explicit agreement. And I think it's, a, it's another example of, you know, whenever you have the internet and you're talking about laundering pieces of propaganda, that explicit agreement, it really is isn't necessary to be incredibly effective. You know, some of the details of this story that, that are new and um, I guess they shouldn't be shocking, but are, you know, is that Steve Bannon is somebody who, you know, he's texting a 60 Minutes producer. A huge story. He was a Bernie guy. It was a contract kill, obviously, um, you know, in, in March 2017, right? And so you, you actually have White House officials who are who are stoking this story um, and, and, you know, sort of just this appalling story and, and, and that all these people are acting in, in bad faith, right? These are not people who are duped and they think, oh, well, maybe this is what happened. Uh, you know, Julian Assange knows that he did not get this information from Seth Rich. He knew that he was lying when he suggested that, you know, oh, he was offering a $20,000 reward because our sources take risks. They were lying. They were taking this piece of propaganda and, and they were using it in, in a really um, exploitative way. And you know, one thing that does, um, you know, Isakoff is a, is a really beautiful writer. And, and one thing that um, that is sort of the subtle undercurrent of, of this story is how painful this was to the rich family, that it continues to be incredibly painful. And, and that this was a great kid who was 27. And like so many sort of people that we know in Washington, D.C., really did appear to be an idealist who, who wasn't a Bernie or Hillary person, but just somebody who was really committed to the idea of voting rights. Um, and appeared to be a, a good friend and a good son and, and came to the city to be a good citizen. And so the idea that his sort of tragic murder would be used in this way to cause so much additional pain on his family, um, you know, th- that's a part of this that whenever you see, you know, the, the participation and the knowing participation of, of people like Fox and Friends, I mean, big media outlets that have no excuse for doing this stuff, um, you know, it, it really is stomach turning. I don't know how else to describe it. I, I think. I think it's stomach turning. I think another thing that really struck me in the story, and and I agree with you in commending Isakoff in getting to this and and making and writing it in there, is the way in which this this conspiracy theory, this BS cover story, interfered with the actual criminal investigation into who was responsible for the murder of this young man. And so, not only does his family have to go through the pain of seeing these bizarre and baseless allegations made about their dead child. But they also know that the D.C. cops and prosecutors who are trying to figure out who actually did this are having to field all kinds of crazy leads that are rooted in this wacky conspiracy theory to the point that they can't do a proper investigation of the of the solid information that that might be available. And so this family may never get closure and they may never find out what actually happened and who actually killed their child. And and I think that also really came through strongly. I have to note, too, that, yes, the national media and Fox News Channel in particular is has a lot of culpability here and the Rich family has sued, I think, appropriately on that basis. But, you know, the local Fox affiliate actually was the first Fox outlet to push this story. Um, and and I think that it also goes, you know, and linking this to the Brady, the Brady uh, segment that we just did, it goes to highlight the extent to which not Trump, the people who work for Trump, the people around Trump are willing to go to any lengths without, you know, without even thinking twice on behalf of their own political or financial advantage, but they're willing to go to lengths that they know 
are contrary to the national interest and national security of the United States. In other words, it's not just that they're willing to spread a rumor. They're willing to spread a rumor that they know is wrong, that they have reason to believe is the result of a foreign influence operation. I mean, there is one big question that this story leaves, which is why this wasn't included in the Mueller report. So um, one of the reasons that Isakov is able to break this story is because the uh, former assistant U.S. attorney who was in charge in, the, in charge of the case and has since retired went on record. And she says that she used her own security clearance to access copies of the SVR intelligence reports that had been intercepted by U.S. officials. She later wrote a memo documenting the Russian role in fomenting the conspiracy theories that she sent to DOJ's National Security Division and, quote, personally briefed special counsel Robert Mueller's prosecutors on her findings. Mm. And so it is a little bit um, of a puzzle as to, you know, we've all focused on what actually ended up in the Mueller report. Um, This is a little bit of a reminder that there's a lot out there that's on the cutting room floor. And and you have to ask yourself, why didn't this make the cut? And and what else is out there, uh, you know, that they ultimately decided not to include. And based on this story, I, I, it's not clear to me why this wouldn't have been included. All right. Well, let's move on to object lessons. Um, I'll go first since we're on the subject of this great Isakoff piece. Um, there is a companion podcast series that Mike and his colleagues at Yahoo have done uh, called Conspiracy Land. I believe it's going to be six parts. I listened to the first part. Uh, yesterday and today. Uh, and it's excellent. Uh, it's really well produced. It is uh, kind of he narrates it and he you hear him doing interviews with some of the key participants. Uh, and in the first uh, couple of episodes, he'll kind of lay out a lot of what's in this uh, scoopy piece. Uh, one of my neighbors shows up in it, which is kind of fun. DC's such a <laughs> The guy who town. runs the neighborhood listserv. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, it's really it's really terrific. And um, again, just props to Mike for, for doing this. And I think he also very thoughtfully lays out in the first couple of minutes of the podcast podcast, why he's doing it, um, so that you don't think it's just, it's not, it's, I promise it is not something that's exploitative or ghoulish in any way. It's extremely thoughtful. Uh, and he did actually interview family members uh, of Seth Rich, which is very hard to hear, but it is in extremely good taste. And it's very fair uh, and a reminder of why he's such a good reporter, because he gets people to talk to him and he treats them fairly and respectfully. And by the way, if you ever want a truly model book about reporting on presidential scandal. Mike Isakoff's book, Uncovering yeah, Clinton, so good. is is an almost miraculously good book about reporting on Paula Jones and getting to know Linda Tripp and the Monica Lewinsky affair. I feel Mike, like we you should better say be something insulting about Mike. Yeah. Just like, <laughs> <laughs> but he's a pain in the ass. He's a real pain in the ass. And, and he's a guy, terrible cook. And, and, and yeah. don't listen to his podcast with Danny Clyde and Spellbugger. <laughs> oh, let's see. Ben, listen you to like, Rational Security. Rational, rational Security instead. Uh, ben, what's your object? I was scanning while we were chatting for the passage in Mike Hayden's book that we were talking about, and I came upon it, and so it is my object lesson. Uh, It reads as follows. We had one final option to exercise for continuity of operations. This is NSA's continuity of operations. As we approached one holiday season with a particularly high quotient of background terrorist chatter, I called David Pepper of GCHQ to tell him that in the event of a catastrophic loss at Fort Meade, we would entrust the management of the U.S. SIGINT system to him and to our senior representative in London. The long pause on the other end of the secure line betrayed both the gravity of the threat and the enormous burden I was imposing on a friend. Uh, So I uh, just think read the president's tweets about Sir Kim in light of that one little anecdote. What he doesn't tell you is David David Pepper responded, what you talking about, Willis? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you've just been waiting for a chance to do that. It would have been the perfect moment for him to do it, too. Just like, (laughs) pin drop. Say what now? Uh, Susan, what's your object? So my object lesson is a Politico story that's actually an excerpt of a a forthcoming book. Um, The title is, quote, Mother is not going to like this. (laughs) 48 hours that almost brought down Donald Trump. Um, And it's by Tim Alberta, who... uh, 
his forthcoming book, uh, American Carnage, uh, sort of is about uh, another great reporter. The uh, the conservative movement's um, uh, initial disgust and ultimate embrace of Donald Trump, um, and this political article uh, sort of maps the forty eight hours around the publication of the Access Hollywood tapes, and and is a piece that really captures in real time uh, the compromises that people made, um, including sort of the uh, the reaction of the Pence's, right? So it's actually Donald Trump who hangs up the phone with Pence and says, oh boy, mother is not going to like this, of course. <laughs> Mike Pence famously calls his wife mother. Um, so putting that aside, and and it's, uh, you know, him, the story of, of Pence and, and Karen Pence uh, praying uh, after this tape comes out and her very strong stance. And What were they praying for exactly? I don't know. <laughs> Deliverance. Not Deliverance. The, not the victims. <laughs> um, you know, w- within uh, 48 hours, Pence is back on the campaign trail. So, um, however, the Lord answered, apparently he was cool with the Access Hollywood tape. Um, but it does show sort of just the, the real-time compromises and um, how craven the individuals around the Trumps are, um, you know, in, including the vice president and including people who um, hold themselves out to be moral paragons. And so um, it's, a, it's a totally fascinating story. I'm, I'm really looking forward to reading the full book and if my husband ever calls me mother i i don't know man susan a boy's best friend is his mother (laughs) 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 listeners will know where that comes from uh well that's the end of the podcast you guys i have nothing to say about my mother so we might as well just like wrap up the show (laughs) she's probably not listening anyway do you you call joe mother You know, he is listening and probably just fell out of his chair. Sorry, Joe. I have a joke locked and loaded, but I'm just going to – I'm going to let it pass. Is it locked and loaded or cocked and loaded? Cocked and loaded. Stop. Oh, my God. Rational Security is a production of Lawfare. You can find our show page at lawfareblog.com. You can find our Mike Pence Rational Security mother dolls. At <laughs> thelawfarestore.com, <laughs> where you can also spend, give us $6 million for tickets yeah, to the next inauguration. We will inauguration. also sell you inauguration <laughs> tickets. And I totally won't get you access to the price. president for it, so don't worry. <laughs> he won't even get you access to <laughs> the inauguration. I mean, come on. It's what, $6 million bucks. Um, they're not even good seats, just going to let you know. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at RATL Security. You can find us on Facebook whenever you download the podcast on Stitcher, iTunes. Luminary, a new service you might want to check out. Uh, please be sure to leave us a rating and review. It really helps us out. Our audio engineer this week was Michaela Fogel. The show is produced and edited by Jen Patia Howell. Music this week by Kim Derrick with his slowed down, sad version of the British punk classic London Calling. Aww. Aww. <laughs> That's Sir Kim to you. <laughs> you just see him like, like, a, like a oasis, like a little guitar. <laughs> he would have fun with that. He would have fun with that. Sophia Yam would too. Um, on behalf of my good friends Tamara Kaufman, Wittis, Ben Wittis, and Susan Hennessy, we'll talk to you next week. Bye bye, everybody. Here's a cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.